Thank you, guys. Good morning, everyone. As Chris prayed, it is the season of Lent. Lent is a season of 40 days and, and a handful of Sundays that lead up to Easter Sunday. And uh, thank you. For, oh, yeah, thank you very much. Traditionally, it's a season when Christians uh, of various stripes will fast. Some people will give up lunch all during the 40 days of Lent. Some people will give up meat all during Lent. Some will give up chocolate. Some, instead of food or a drink, focus on something they uh, normally enjoy doing daily. They'll give up watching television for Lent or give up checking Facebook for Lent. Something that was part of their daily rhythm. Now, they do this uh, in order to make themselves uncomfortable daily. Not as a, an endurance test, but what it does is it sets an internal alarm clock then that you know is going to go off and remind you to pray. Lent is about fasting as a reminder to pray. And so we, uh, to help in this, have uh, the women's ministry has produced a, a Lent uh, guide and it has a, a kit there that makes um, this neat table topper. It has the empty tomb and crosses and real grass that grows. And you, know, you put that on your table and that reminds our family of what season it is because kids, they... They're, they're really lousy at fasting. I remember my daughter when you're, I'm gonna fast from gum. I'm like, okay. Like five minutes later, I was like, aren't you chewing gum? Oh, this is so hard. But yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, under 12, I don't recommend even trying it. That's the, 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 the kit that the women's ministry has made will go off much better. For the rest of us, though, we're uh, giving these rings with a card. And, and if you didn't pick this up on your way in, do so on your way out if you'd like. And each week, you add a card. And then when that boredom or that hunger or whatever associated with your fast hits you, it reminds you to just pull this out of your pocket and here are some prayers. And this week we're recommending this one. Lord, show me where I have decided what is true before I even asked you. Lead me to truth. It's a very unusual prayer. Lord, show me where I have decided what's true before I even asked you. as something to re repent from. So I want to spend our time here this morning kind of explaining what that prayer means and how we use it. Um, for me, coming to the Lord with in mind what's already true before we even ask him is a lot like playing Punk the Principle. Punk the Principle is a game the teachers used to play, not officially, that's what I called it, whenever I used to be a high school teacher. Every year, we'd have this staff meeting in August, and every year, right before lunch, the principal would go over the discipline policies for the year, and every year, there was this little group that sat over there, and they'd raise their hand. And the principal would say, what's your question? And they'd say, well, you just said that if a kid does this, they'll receive this as a detention. And I sent, and they'd list off a bunch of names, all these kids last year, and you didn't give any of them that detention. Okay, thank you. And then another one raised their hand. Well, you just said that if a teacher would do this and the custodian would respond this way by straightening the room out. And I, I and her and she and we all did this and the custodian never straightened out our room. Okay, thanks again. Next question. And not one of these things were questions. They were all punk the principle. They were all, let me show you how what you've just said that you don't actually do yourself. And uh, therefore, let me show you why I'm not going to do anything you say this year. They would take us sometimes a half hour into our lunch hour playing punk the principle. Not one real question. Every single one, mind made up before they even put their hand in the air. And I think a lot of times this is how we come to God. We come to God, we come to the Bible, we come to Jesus, not to learn a way of life, not for a Lord to follow. We come with our mind already made up, and we measure God against what we've already decided. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite Christian authors. Teacher at Oxford, lived from about 1898 to 1962-ish. And he, uh, 
spent the first half of his life as an atheist because when he was a very young boy, his mother got cancer. And he said he prayed for days that God would heal his mother and God did not. His mother died. And he decided at that point, God does not exist. And that's how he lived the first half of his life. Now he writes about that later in life after he becomes a Christian and he says this, I was at this time living like so many atheists or anti-theists in a world of contradictions. I maintained that God did not exist. I was also very angry with God for not existing. I was equally angry with him for creating a world. Why do we come at God with this hostility and this measuring stick? I think at least part of it is we know that he's coming at us with a measuring stick. We know that Jesus comes and he wants only everything. All our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. And Jesus has rules for us about almost every intimate thing in our life. Jesus has things to say about what we do with our money. Jesus has things to say about what we do with our sexuality. Jesus has things to say about forgiving people who hurt us. Jesus has things to say about politics and how we treat the poor and the disabled and people of other races that very often we feel like have not paid the dues that we have paid. And well, we say, Jesus, I've got a few rules of my own while we're talking about rules. And so we come at him with all sorts of questions. Where does it say I have to give that much? Where does it say I can't have sex with that person? Where does it say I have to forgive someone who did that to me? But the the interesting part, because those could be all worthy questions, except that in many cases, we've already made up our mind about these things. We don't intend to change anything. In fact, if he answers, where does it say that, we'll only say back, well, who really wrote those words? And how do I know that that's been translated correctly? Again, worthy questions, except even if he answers those, very often we'll simply come back with, well, why should I care what that says anymore? Our mind uh, is already made up before we even ask the question. And while we're at it, we have a few questions for God. While we're in a questioning mode, if you're such a loving God, then why is my mother dead? Why is my child sick? Why did a hurricane strike the East Coast? Answer me, and I'll decide whether or not you are Lord and Savior. And even then, in our heart, we know there's no answer he can offer that will satisfy us. We have already decided the answer to this question before we even asked. That's the heart behind, Lord, show me where I've decided what's true before I even asked you and to lead me to truth. This way we come at God reminds me of the way that they came at Jesus. So I'd like to take us back to the Tuesday before the cross. Can you go back there with me? It's the Tuesday before the crucifixion. It's the Passover. It's a huge celebration. Jesus has come. He's already done some things there in Jerusalem that have drawn a lot of attention. So by Tuesday, they are out to get him. If you want to follow along, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Here they come. Later, the leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Now they start buttering him up. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial and don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, 
Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? This is a trap. This is not a question. Because if Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, they're going to have him with the crowd because the Jews are conquered by the Romans. They hate the Romans. The Roman emperor claims he is God living on earth. The coin says so right on the coin. And Jesus says pay taxes to Caesar. They're going to say, you want us to financially support a pagan murderous power. On the other hand, if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes to the Roman Empire, even better. Then they can report him to the Roman authorities, having him arrested for sedition against the empire. Either way, he loses popularity with the crowd, or else he goes to jail, and they're out of his hair. Verse 15, Jesus answers. Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin, and I'll tell you. When they handed it to him, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, then Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. His reply completely amazed them. He said, you use the Roman roads. You benefit from Roman educational systems. Some of you use it. You benefit from Roman military protection. And it's Roman money, so pay for it. Why not? But your allegiance, your worship, these things don't belong to Caesar. These things belong to God. So give to God what belongs to God. Now Dan is going to spend in a few weeks uh, unpacking this difficult passage and some more in greater detail. But for now, I want to say this and point out, they already knew what they believed about this question before they walked up to him and asked it. And no matter what answer he gave, it wasn't going to change a thing. They would not believe he was the Messiah or that he had any special wisdom from God, no matter what he said or what he did. Their mind was made up before they even asked that question. They come at Jesus with this preset doubt, and Jesus does a judo throw on them. Do you know how a judo throw works? I thought I could explain it, but then I thought what would be more fun is if we had a judo demonstration. <laughs> Here comes Sensei Derek. Thank you. Derek Dotson, multiple black belts in, in several martial arts. And uh, oh, there's Chris Lee, the music guy. That's not a costume. He really does have a black belt. There's Mark, who runs the screens, also also a black belt. So sometimes people ask, what's Lakeland's security plan? I say, the worship arts team. Derek plays bass, right? Yeah, but it's not why you're here today. Today you're here to tell us what we mean by a judo throw and how it works. Take it away. Well, judo, jiu-jitsu, aikido, we've heard those terms before. They all kind of come from the same place. And instead of dealing with conflict like this, uses off-balancing, misdirection, using the opponent's energy and force against them. So actually, uh, the more energy they put into the attack, the worse it is for them. Oh, this will be fun. So the first <laughs> demonstration we're going to give is, is more of a gentle approach. So we can off-balance and be nice about it. So wasn't that nice? <laughs> gentle, just kind of laid him down. Yeah. <laughs> I had a prom date do that once. <laughs> Um, no, I never went to prom, you're right. <laughs> Car carry on. 
so one of the things that the Pharisees did to Jesus is they tried to get him to step into a trap. So here's uh, stepping into a trap. Oh, he kind of took legs right out from underneath him. Um, and sometimes they played a little dirty and went for the legs to try to uh, take Jesus down, but we'll see what happens when he steps off the line of attack. And as Chris dials up his attacks, you see him hitting the mat harder. Not a good idea. Uh, on this last one... On this last one, this uh, definitely shows you how, when you put more energy into the equation, you get a little bit more back on the backside. And there we go. That was a nice one. Did you like that? I like that one. I like that one. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sensei Derek. The Pharisees come at Jesus with this negativity of this, this uh, intent to get him arrested. And he takes their own energy and throws into the mat, demonstrating their minds were closed before they even showed up here today. These men don't seek wisdom or the things of God. They seek power for themselves. So they slink away. And here come the Sadducees. Now, Sadducees are an interesting group. This is a group of priests, so conservative, they only read the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They consider the rest of it too liberal. All right, so here they come. Verse 18, then Jesus was approached by Sadducees, religious leaders who say, there is no resurrection from the dead. They pose this question. Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies, leaving a wife without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who would carry on his brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow, but he also died without children. The third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them and still there were no children. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. This, yeah, this is not a question. They already said they don't even believe in the resurrection. They're not biting their nails over what's going to happen in this situation. They, this question is designed to demonstrate that belief in the resurrection is ridiculous and creates logical problems for anyone smart enough like them to stop and take a look. Jesus has an answer for this. Jesus replied, verse 24, your mistake is you don't know the scriptures. You only read the first five books anyway. You don't know and you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they'll be like the angels. Great answer because Sadducees don't believe in angels either. He's saying, you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. You guys don't know enough to know that your question is ridiculous. And for the rest of us, Jesus leaves this great statement about after the dead will rise, you won't be married. You won't be given in marriage. We all go, what? And you can search the whole rest of scriptures and that will never be addressed again. It's this 2,000 year old sting Jesus left us to say, y'all don't know everything you think you know, okay? You don't know what's gonna happen but you sure do act like you know. He goes on, verse 26. But now as to whether the dead will be raised, haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses, the five books you do read? In the story of the burning bush, long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said to Moses, 
I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. You have made a serious error. God refers to himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob after they have passed on. And this is because they are still with God at eternity, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will return at the resurrection, and you guys don't get any of this. And the thing for us to notice this morning is they don't change a thing. It wasn't a real question. They had already decided what they thought about all this before they even walked up to ask the question, and nothing he could say, no scripture he could cite would ever have changed their mind. But Jesus, in this answer, does a judo throw and takes their negativity and demonstrates they're not seeking wisdom. They're not seeking God. They're just seeking to maintain control. But not everyone comes on this Tuesday with their mind made up and closed. Some people then and now really do have honest questions for God. Verse 28. But now, oh, nope, let's try the other verse 28. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there and listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well. So he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? This is not a trap. This is a question. This is someone who, someone who wants to learn. There are questions worth asking in church. In this case, he says, in our scriptures, there are 615 some laws and, and rituals to obey. Which one is the most important? On which one do all the rest hang? What is life with God really all about? And Jesus has an answer, verse 29. Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. Then you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The teacher of religious law replied, well said, teacher. You spoke in the truth by saying there is only one God and no other. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Of course not. He can't be trapped. He just judo throws all the negativity. And with great authority here, he proclaims a new picture of God. He says, you've got 615 laws, rituals, sacrifices. I'm telling you, they were all given to point you to one. Love God and love your neighbor. Everything you've been doing has been leading you to that. All these stories have been leading you to love God and love your neighbor. It's a new picture than the God they had who was grumpy about 615 laws. So you see all these empty frames hanging up, but today Jesus paints in another one. Love God and love others. Everything else you read in these scriptures points you to that. Hang on to that one thing. Make everything else make sense in light of that. We don't always understand what God's doing. He doesn't always make sense to us. It was 2008 
Uh, my daughter was six, my son was four, it was May, the sky had been green all afternoon. So you live in this part of the country in May and the sky is green all afternoon, you know what that means. Sure enough, when the sun went down, the wind whipped up, the tornado sirens go off. My wife was at work, so I'm, at home, alone. I'm home alone with the kids. So we go down into the crawl space. All the signs point to it. Now, the crawl space at my house is a scary place. It is under the stairs. It is dark. There are cobwebs. There are a few dead bugs. I have told my kids repeatedly, don't go into the crawl space. Sometimes the nails work their way down through the stair joists. Uh, there's a set mouse trap, children, in the crawl space. There's a glass fishbowl in the corner. Just don't go in a crawl space. But what do we do on the night the tornado sirens go off? Oh, let's all go down into the crawl space. <laughs> into the dark hole we go. My daughter's all fidgety, and I don't want to be here, Dad. And then the house bends. You know, you get that groaning of the timbers you get when a house is stressed by the wind. And I pray, oh, dear Lord. And my daughter is done. She jumps up and runs out of the crawl space back into the house. So I run up the stairs, and I grab her, and I bring her back down. I'm like, no, 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 you got to stay down here. And she starts screaming, I don't want to be here. I don't want to. She runs out again. So I leave the four-year-old, and I grab the daughter. I pull her back down into the crawl space, and this time I hold her. And she's struggling and fighting. Let me go. Let me go. And I'm holding her there. And you can imagine what she's thinking. What kind of a loving father does this? On this dark and terrifying night, he pulls me into this dark and terrifying hole, and he will not let me go. Now, she's six years old. She can't think that complex. So she just says what all kids in that situation say. She starts screaming at me. You're not my dad. You're not my dad. My dad wouldn't do this to me. It's no different than what we do on the dark night when God holds us in a dark place and we cry out, you're not my God. You're not my God. There's no God I could think of would do this. And in both cases, it changes nothing. So the next morning we get out, of, well, we got out later that night. The next morning we decide we'll have a talk about storms and surviving and how it is that we survive and why I did what I did, and I think she understood a little better, but not totally. She didn't totally think that that was the way that should have went. Our storms end, and sometimes we get an answer that helps us maybe understand why God would hold us in a dark place, but not totally. I told you about C.S. Lewis who prayed that his mother would be healed from cancer. She wasn't. She died. Later in life, he became a follower of Jesus and, and much later in life, he wrote a series of children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia. They're about this imaginary kingdom that's created and ruled over by this uh, majestic talking lion. 
and children from earth will visit this magic kingdom. And in this book, the magician's nephew, there's a boy named Diggory, and he visits Narnia, and he commits a sin. Uh, he's there on the day Narnia is created, and he create, commits this sort of sin, and it brings evil into Narnia. Very Garden of Eden story. Now, the interesting thing about Diggory is he's roughly the same age as Lewis was, and Diggory has a sick mother who's dying. I'd like to read you what Lewis wrote in this story. Son of Adam, said Aslan, the lion, are you ready to undo the wrong that you have done to my sweet country of Narnia on the very day of its birth? Well, I don't see what I can do, said Diggory. You see, the queen ran away, and I asked, are you ready, said the lion. Yes, said Diggory. He had had for a second some wild idea of saying, I'll try to help you if you'll promise to help my mother. But he realized in time that the lion was not at all the sort of person one could try to make bargains with. I believe Lewis wrote that to confess that his understanding of God as a child, as a God to whom you could say, heal my mother or I decide you don't exist, isn't how it works. But I want to read you something else he wrote in the very next few paragraphs. But when he had said yes, he thought of his mother, and he thought of the great hopes he had had, and how they were all dying away, and a lump came in his throat, and tears in his eyes, and he blurted out, but please, please won't you, can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at his face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own and, wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own. For a moment, he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said the lion, I know. Grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. And I believe when Lewis wrote that, he was also confessing, sometimes when we are held in the dark place, we don't understand why, but maybe the most important thing to realize is that it is God who holds us. He is there with us, and he knows the end of days, we believe by faith. The resurrection, the return of Christ is going to answer most of our most harsh and caustic questions we have right now. Here's what I'm trying to say, um, congregation, church, friends. Here's what I'm trying to say. We don't have to come at God so viciously when we don't understand. Right now, there is alive in America a, a very militant uh, Christian church. 
a church that makes all kinds of statements about politics, about science, about God himself. Most of these statements made barely searching the scriptures. Uh, thrown out there and then go searching for a verse to support it. But the decision was made before the scriptures were sought. There also exists in our country a very militant atheism. Uh, 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 it, it posts uh, cutesy phrases on Facebook and, and bumper stickers and, and, and these, these neat pithy, pithy phrases designed to make God and belief in God look stupid. And to either of these factions, there's no statement you can make and no argument you can find, no evidence from the scripture is going to change their mind. Their mind about what they believe was made up before they even asked those questions. And that kind of conflict just leads us into destruction. We have to cling to the identity of God, the new picture Jesus paints. He comes to bring us life. He comes to bring us into love of God and love of our neighbor. And if we can cling to that, then it helps us understand the rest. In the meantime, there's going to be a lot of things we don't understand. The things Jesus says about our money and the things Jesus says about our sexuality, these are things very often you can't understand until by faith you start to do them and then you start to say, oh, now I kind of see how this works, but you don't get to know before. What he says about racism, what he says about how to treat the poor, very often we don't understand until we begin. What Jesus says about forgiving is hard to understand before you start. Here's a statement about forgiving from another author. He said, uh, we come to understand forgiving as setting a prisoner free. Only after the fact do we realize the prisoner was us. Why God created something called the church is eternally perplexing. Why God made this church, which can be such a disappointment, and yet it's such a big deal, it seems, to the Holy Spirit that we come here and we worship the Lord and we serve one another very hard to understand. And you are permitted to ask questions about every single one of these things. So long as your posture is to hear an answer from the Lord and to learn and grow from it. If you come to make Jesus look ridiculous, you'll never succeed. And the weight of your own cynicism will get you judo thrown every time. And you're gonna spend a lot of time on this mat bloody and bitter and so angry. It is okay if you don't understand so long as you can remember who he is. So that's why we encourage the Lenten fast and through the week as you feel the gnaw of the hunger or the boredom of what you're used to do and you're not doing for these 40 days. Uh, the disruption of that will remind you to pray and you have this pocket ring you can take out and say, Lord, show me where I've decided what was true before I even asked you the question and lead me to truth. And now we come to celebrate the biggest judo throw of all. They finally put Jesus through a fake court in the middle of the night with phony witnesses. They did get him condemned to death at last. They stripped him naked to humiliate him. They tortured him. They hung him on a cross. They put a sign over his head meant to make him look ridiculous. They shouted up taunts. If you're the son of God, bring yourself down from the cross. 
He died. And they put him in a tomb. And then God does the biggest judo throw that has ever been done in the history of the universe. He takes all the energy of that negativity and condemnation and death and he turns it into the resurrection. And he says, that picture he painted for you of me, it is the true picture. See, I raise him from the dead. I vindicate the story he told. The way of life he commends to you, I make him king of the universe. I vindicate him in the raising from the dead and reversing death. And if you follow him, there is a resurrection waiting for you as well. One of the hardest things to do when you're held in a dark place is sometimes to find the words to pray. So the prayer team, the same one that does the Wednesday night prayers, which you can join, is always back in the prayer circle. They're there right now. This is what they do for the church. They're there to pray with you, to pray for you, and as you leave today, you can just go into that circle of chairs, and there, there, there they are, waiting to serve you in that way. Uh, we have a special gathering at the church I must attend, so I'm not available at the pastor coffee with pastor this morning. So if I haven't gotten to meet you yet, um, perhaps next week we'll get to do that. I apologize for that. I want to tell you about a celebration and invite you to a celebration we're having on March 17th. So just a few weeks from now, we're going to celebrate the two-year mark for our As One Financial Challenge. It's been a great two years. God has been wonderful. So we're inviting everyone in the church to celebrate, participating in As One or not. We can all celebrate what God has done in our midst. So March 17th, five o'clock, we're gonna have a dinner, free dinner. That's the best kind. Uh, six o'clock, we're having a guest speaker come in, uh, uh, Robert Lupton. He's the author of the book, Toxic Christianity, which is a great book about how sometimes, toxic charity. Toxic charity. There is a book called Toxic Christianity. We didn't get that person. Um, <laughs> I don't even know who wrote that one. So, but this is Toxic Charity. And this is, uh, uh, Robert Lupton has written this book and it, it tells a great way of pointing out there are some ways we do charity that rob people of their dignity. And it's exactly what we didn't want to do. And then, and then he has ways to do charity that allow people to retain their dignity and grow close to Christ. And he's a great, super, he's just a great speaker. And I, I loved, loved him to death. So he's coming on March 17th, also free. Uh, then we're having a dessert and uh, live music afterward. And childcare for the whole thing, also free. So here's what we need. I need you to go out to the round kiosk today and get a ticket. Um, the, the tickets are just so we can count how many people to make food for. So for you type A types, when you lose your ticket, doesn't matter. Um, you don't really need a ticket to show up. We just need you to take one so we know you're coming for food. By the same token, if you decide, I'm not going, never mind, give the ticket back, and then you're uncounted. Uh, while you're at the round kiosk, mark the ages of the children you'll be bringing for that free child care, grades, uh, kindergarten, no, no, infants through second grade. And then we'll know how many uh, child care workers to get hired and lined up for that night, all right? And the sooner we all do that, the better the plan will execute. So I encourage you to do that as you leave today at the round kiosk, amen? We're gonna end each of these Lenten services proclaiming some of these things about the true picture Jesus has given us, this core truth. So let us do that together in reciting the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. 
He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Go forth in peace and prayer.